Even if you haven't looked at a calendar recently in the last few days or weeks or even months, you know that Christmas is coming. And why is that? When we go through the stores of the mall, we see all of the displays, all of the lights and decorations. We see all of the deals on gifts that people could buy. We also see our neighbors putting up different uh, Christmas decorations around their houses. We hear songs on the radio, Christmas carols, and of course, the snow. All signs, all evidence that Christmas is coming. Well, Christmas is a very well-established holiday for us in the United States and even around the world. I've often wondered, did the Old Testament believers look forward to Christmas in a similar way that we do? Were they anticipating this great event of a birth that was to come? Now we believe, we firmly believe that the Old Testament believers, the children of Israel, were not saved in a different way than New Testament Christians. We believe that we were all saved by grace through faith. The Apostle Paul testifies to this in Romans chapter 4, when he reminds us of what it says back in Genesis chapter 15, that Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. You see, it was through faith that Abram and really all of the believers of the Old Testament were viewed as righteous and holy in God's sight, acceptable before him because of their faith in God and his promises. The chief of these promises was, of course, the promise of the seed that was to be born, the one who was to come. And so they look forward with great anticipation to the great Christmas event, the event of a birth. This Advent season, we will be investigating this Christmas event as we look for Christmas clues from the Old Testament scriptures, as we see what the Old Testament believers saw, we see God's word given to them that gave them evidence, proof of the birth that was going to soon happen and what it would mean for them. If you remember back in grade school, probably when you discussed journalism or writing articles for a newspaper, your teacher probably told you how important it was when investigating something to make sure you covered the five W's, right? The who, what, where, why, and when. Those are so important to make sure all of the details are covered. And we see in these Old Testament scriptures that God covers most all of those details for the Old Testament believers and even for us here today. And so this evening we begin with our first question as we investigate these Christmas clues and we take up the question of why. Why? Why would this Christmas event occur? The event of a birth. And why should people have been getting excited about it? Why do we get excited about Christmas in this birth that was foretold. The text for this evening is the one that was just read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And to bring us back into that text, I'd like to read just the final verse for you once again. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, can you imagine what it would be like to live in a perfect world? Imagine it, a world without backaches. 
a world without sunburn or frostbite, a world without the flu or even the common cold, a world without fighting or humans killing one another, or even animals killing one another. It's hard for us to fathom such a perfect world. And yet, that's the sort of world that Adam and Eve were brought into, a perfect world without any of those horrible maladies that we experience in our world today. We might think to ourselves, why in the world would you want to do anything to change that? Wouldn't you want to keep that world just the way it is because it was so amazing? So what gives? I'll enter Satan into the scene. We aren't told at what day of creation God made the angels, but we do know that they are created beings. And it's evident from Scripture that God created the angels to have a free will, to be able to choose to follow God and do what is right, or to choose to do evil and disobey Him. And as the Scriptures reveal to us, there was a group of angels that sinned against God, led by the lead angel now referred to as Satan or Lucifer. He desired God's throne, God's power for himself, and he turned against God. But of course, he didn't win. And Satan and his angels could no longer remain in that perfect place in God's dwelling, and so God cast them down to earth. And then what happened? Well, Satan was quick to take advantage of this opportunity. God's newly created world, he would do whatever he could to destroy it, and especially the crown of his creation, mankind. And so he comes to Eve first in our lesson for today. And what is his temptation for her? Has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? What does he want to do by that temptation? He, he wants her to question God's word. Did God really say not to eat of a, a certain tree in the garden? Is that actually technically correct? Then he goes on to further tempt her, you will be like God. He's trying to convince her that God is maybe holding back something good from her, and that if she just does what he says and takes the fruit and eat it, then she will be like God. Perhaps having that power and full knowledge that Satan claimed that she would get upon eating the fruit. Question for us this evening, though, is are you ever tempted in a similar way? We want to say to ourselves, well, of course not. Of course not. Tempted to question God and his word? Why would I, a Christian, ever do that? I, I love God and I love his word. And why would I ever want to take the place of God? And yet the temptation abounds, doesn't it, in our world to do exactly that. Take just one example of sexual sin. Think about the temptation that often is there for us, presented by others in our world, maybe by the devil himself. God's word says that all sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. What does the world tell us? Did God really say that? After all, what does it actually mean to be married? Maybe technically you're sort of married with the person you sleep with, even if you didn't officially get married, and maybe that's okay. Further with his sin, as God tells us in his word, that whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in, with her in his heart. And again, we can question that too. Well, 
Is that right? It sounds pretty strict and pretty severe. How in the world can I possibly keep my eyes from looking at, at, at an attractive person if they're there in front of me or an image on the screen? God can't possibly mean what he says. And after all, it's not actually doing the deed, and I'm not really going against my spouse by looking at those images or lusting, and so maybe it's okay. Or maybe even wanting to put words into God's mouth and say, well, God certainly wants me to be happy. God wouldn't want me to remain in this loveless marriage. Maybe justify an unscriptural divorce. As we are tempted in many ways in our world, and that's just an example of one type of sin, but we can think of many more, tempted ultimately to ask the question, did God really say? Well, technically, it could be understood this way, so maybe what I'm doing is okay and really not a sin. But ultimately, what is that doing? What are we doing when we do that? We're ultimately making ourselves to be God. We're standing in judgment over God and his word, and we are writing the word instead of letting God's word stand as it is revealed to us in Scripture. During the Middle Ages, when the apostate church was carrying out the Spanish Inquisition, they used an instrument called the Virgin in order to torture and kill many of God's people, many of their victims. What this instrument was, is it was a statue that was fashioned and painted as a very seductive, beautiful woman. And the victim was thrown into her arms to supposedly kiss the virgin. With the pulling of a lever, soon the arms embraced the victim and would not let him go. And a hundred knives stuck out from inside the statue to kill the individual. We can think of that in comparison to the seduction of Satan when it comes to not just sexual sin, but so many sins. As he allures us, and he tells us that there is, is great pleasure to be found here. It's so inviting. But as we fall into that sin, we are pierced through with many daggers. As that sin leads to destruction. And we see this, of course, when it comes to those sexual sins. As we chase after pornography, thinking that it's, all not, it's not all that bad, but what does it lead us to do? It leads us to not be content with the spouse that God has given us, or maybe that he plans to give us in the future. Or when we abuse God's gift of sex outside of the bounds of marriage, it can lead to so much brokenness, so much hurt, so much pain, and even disease, and so many more problems there are far greater things that sin does than merely give us earthly consequences. Sin also leads to eternal destruction in God's judgment. Adam and Eve saw this in the garden too as Satan allured them, tried to convince them, eat this fruit and then you'll be like God. So many wonderful things will be yours, so much more than what you had. Remember, as I said before, how amazingly perfect that world was. Who would want to wreck it? But they, they wanted more. But it led to destruction. Not only has God cursed the world, not only as the wife would now have greater pains in childbirth, not only as their relationship would now be jaded by sin, but also furthermore as it would bring to them death. And to all their descendants as well. As the Apostle Paul writes, 
in the book of Romans chapter 5, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So also, also death spread to all people because all sinned. Because of this one sin, it corrupted God's beautiful creation. And it meant death for Adam and Eve, and it meant death for their successors, their children as well. In the scriptures, it tells us that Adam was made in the image of God, but concerning his son Cain, it tells us that Cain was born in Adam's image, not in God's image. And we see how Cain really showed forth the sin that he inherited from his parents as he sought to kill and murder his brother Abel. And that sin passed down from Adam and Eve to their children, down to Noah and his children, down to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, and the children of Israel and David and so many more. And you notice who I'm mentioning here. Believers, right? Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all believers trusting in the one true God. And yet, in the scripture we see record, recorded there, time and time again, their sins passed down from their first parents. King David himself testified to this inborn sin, this truth that we are natural-born sinners. In Psalm 51, verse 5, when he said, Certainly I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. With all this pain and destruction that Adam and Eve's misdeed brought, yet we see incredible mercy from God, don't we? Just 15 short verses in our lesson for today. And so much takes place, doesn't it? That Eve is tempted by Satan. She falls into sin. They're afraid. And yet, God comes to them, doesn't he? He doesn't hesitate. He comes to Adam and Eve. And he confronts them with their sin, yes. But he doesn't hesitate to bring to them an incredible promise. You see, God shows mercy where he did not have to. God could have damn them to hell right there. But he shows mercy for human beings, doesn't he? As he testifies against the serpent in our lesson, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and your, her seed. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. Mankind had fallen into the lies of the devil. And they'd really gotten caught up in a war that had a far greater background. Went back further than Adam and Eve began in heaven, as I mentioned earlier. They were in some ways collateral damage. And yet, because of their sin, it meant destruction and death even for them. And yet, God lays out a promise. What is that promise? The promise is to send a seed. A seed of the woman. An offspring of the woman, and it's a singular offspring. We know this from the final statement there. It says, he will crush your head and you. And it's especially that you there. That's a singular you. That's not a plural you, but it's a singular you. Referring to Satan, you will crush his heel. Pointing us to the truth that it's talking about a singular offspring who would crush the singular serpent's head, Satan. And so this is what the children of Israel looked forward to. The promised seed who would come to crush the power of the devil. 
In Ralph Hawkhus 1960s play entitled The Deputy, which is set in Europe in, during World War II, we hear about the main character who's a young priest. And the young priest soon discovers what's actually going on at these Jewish concentration camps run by the Germans there. That they're not just holding the people, but they're actually extermination camps. And so over the course of the play, the young priest tries to do whatever he can to stop it. He goes to all of the authorities in the government. He goes to even the Pope himself to try to step in and act. But all he finds are excuses. Finally, at the end of the play, the only thing that he, feel he feels he can do is he takes a six-pointed star, a star of David, and he sews it on his sleeve. And he approaches the gate to one of these concentration camps. They quickly capture him and roast him in the oven with the rest of the Jews. The seed of the woman who was to come was one of us. He would be born a human being like you and me. That he also would live under God's law as we do. And yet he does not come in order to die just to make a statement about how terrible death is. He doesn't come to die in vain like the young priest in that play, but he comes to die for a purpose, as the writer to the Hebrews lays out for us. Therefore, since the children share flesh and blood, he also shared the same flesh and blood, so that through death he could destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. You see, the seed of the woman was to come, that he might die, yet through his death, though his heel would be bruised, though it appears that the serpent would win through his crucifixion, yet through that death, he would defeat the power of the devil and crush his head and his power forever. This is what the Old Testament church looked forward to, the coming of the seed of the woman who was to be born. And this is also the why. The reason that Christmas is so precious to us, the reason it was so precious to them, it meant the coming of the Savior, the one who would undo what Satan had done to us, that would bring us freedom from sin, death, and hell through him. And this promise was passed down again and again in the scriptures. It was given to Adam and Eve. It was reiterated to Abram that through your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was repeated also to Isaac and to Jacob. It was repeated to David even in our psalm for today concerning his seed that would come who is the Savior and the Messiah. Yes, we with the Old Testament church have every reason to get excited and anticipate Christmas because it means of the coming of the one who will destroy the devil's work and has destroyed the devil's work for us once and for all. Amen. Invite the congregation and please rise. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore.